Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 25, 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thanks, Katie. Good morning, Tara. Good morning. Has anyone asked you jokingly, why do you do the things that you do? I hear that quite a bit. But think about the question a little more seriously for a minute. Why do people do the things that they do? Why do people do the things that they do? Why do they make the decisions that they make? The reason is that everybody has a treasure or treasures, a goal, something they want, something they long for. And what we treasure controls our heart. And what controls our heart controls our hands, our behavior. And we can't help but follow, pursue our treasure. I'm going to give you a little bit of background for the text today, but before I do, I want to let you know that today's the last day for a little while that we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. Because next week, we're doing a communal prayer, Thanksgiving-type service. And then after that, Advent starts already. You believe that? I heard Christmas music for the first time four days ago. I know there's mixed feelings about that. I'm, I'm okay with it. I've thrown up the white flag, you know, years ago about that. So Advent starts two weeks from now. And then after Advent and Christmas Eve, we're going to go right into a mini-series called The Promises of God, for six weeks. Then after the mini-series of the promises of God, we're going to finish up the Gospel of Matthew ending around Easter time. 
But today is a culmination of the parables that Jesus has been teaching. So a little bit of background. Jesus in Matthew 24 told his disciples that the temple would be destroyed, that he would leave and one day return. And so in Matthew 24 and 25, it's been about what will the signs of the end look like in his return and how do we await his return? These parables about watchfulness. How do we actively await for the return of the king? And the last three weeks, we broke those down with the, with the parables concerning the first one being, with the end in view, have a certain mindset. And then with the end in view, two weeks ago, have a certain heart. And with the end in view, have certain kinds of hands that are serving. Have a certain mindset, heart, and hands as we await for the return of the king. And in today's parable, the parable of the sheep and the goats, it's about the return of the just judge to judge our head and our heart and our hands. The just judge, and that really leads us to our main idea, the just judge will return to reveal the children of God and the children of the curse. That's the point of the text, the main idea. The just judge will return to reveal the children of God and the children of the curse. What does that mean? We'll talk about it. But here's how we're going to break it down. First of all, we're going to talk about the return of the just judge, and that's in verses 31 through 33. And what is he going to do? He's going to reveal the revelation of the children of God, who belongs to him, verses 34 to 40. And then after he reveals the children of God, he reveals the children of the curse, verses 41 through 46. So that's where we're going. First of all, the return of, the, of Jesus, the return of the king of the just judge. Now, in verses 31 to 33, it talks about his return and what it's going to be like. And here's what I see in these verses, that his return is going to be awesome. And I mean actually awesome. <laughs> and he's going to arbitrate, authoritatively judge. So his return is going to be awesome, verses 31 to 32. And as I read it, please picture, imagine yourself at this scene, this scene that is more likely to happen than the next time you have to pay taxes, more likely to happen than your own death, because his return could be, potentially, before you die. Remember, we don't know when it is. But this is more certain to happen than anything else you know of in this life. And it's going to be awesome. 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations. That day is going to be awesome. Now we throw around that word awesome pretty loosely, don't we? This is awesome, that's awesome. The game I watched was awesome. Shirt, your shirt is awesome. I had a burger, it was okay, but the pickle made it awesome. Like we just throw around that word very loosely. And that's okay. It's not a sin to say the word awesome about things that aren't actually awesome. However, what does awesome, <laughs> what does awesome mean? When something's awesome, it causes you to be filled with awe. A pickle has never caused me to be filled with awe. <laughs> never. If something's awesome, it means it's extremely impressive or daunting and inspires great admiration, apprehension, or fear. That's what awesome means. And when the Son of Man returns in all of his glory, as prophesied in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man that will return on the clouds of heaven 
in great fire and glory with all of his angels to judge the world, to be given dominion of all nations permanently, every other kingdom and nation that has risen and fallen, risen and fallen, the last permanent kingdom of God on earth ruled by King Jesus. That's going to be awesome. (laughs) In all his power and in all his beauty, with all of his angels, every one we read about, and don't just, when you think about the word angel, don't categorize all of them into the, ex- like, like they're the exact same clones of themselves. It's not the Star Wars clone army. They all look exactly the same. The Bible describes seraphim in Isaiah 6, cherubim, archangel Michael. All the angels in all their ranks, all of them, will be accompanying King Jesus. As Hebrews 1 says, those ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation all of them, without being able to count how many there are, are going to be accompanying the king like a royal bodyguard as he returns to his planet. And he will sit on his glorious throne. The just judge will look out at all the nations who have ever existed, the ones we read about in our history books, the ones we've never heard of, around every single person that will be raised, as it says in Daniel 12, for either everlasting shame and contempt or everlasting life. Everyone, small and great. Every nation, small and great. Every person, small and great, how we've tried to categorize people. All the kings and the queens and maharajas and pharaohs and rulers and celebrities, every person you've put on a pedestal and your neighbor and your family and your second cousin and and yourself. Every single person who's ever lived, all the billions of people, imagine it, this ocean of people before the king, in all his glory, with all his angels, as he's sitting on his royal throne, glorious throne, to judge. He's going to judge. He's going to arbitrate, authoritatively judge. That's what it says in verses 32 to 33. And he will separate. Let me stop there just for a second. That word separate means judge. The word judge literally means to divide or to separate. And the person that has the authority to separate people, to judge, to divide them into these categories we're about to hear, is only King Jesus. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. So again, picture it. One heterogeneous, huge ocean of people, everyone who's ever been born and died no matter how old they were, no matter when it was, everyone. One heterogeneous mass, and then quickly they're going to be divided, judged, separated by the king into two categories, not three, not five, two. The sheep and the goats. The sheep representing those who belong to God, the righteous, those who are right with God, and the goats, the unrighteous, those who are not right with God, children of The curse. Those two categories, and only those two. People will not be separated based on, hey, what nation were you in? The angels aren't going to go around and say, okay, you were from this nation, you were from that, you go over there. No. Not based on the nation. Not based on the hobby. All of you who liked frisbee golf to the right. Everyone else to the left. Not on your hobby. Not on your friends. Not even with your own family. Earthly family. The two categories will be those who belong to God and those who don't. That's it. Who gets to decide that? God, not us. He will authoritatively judge when he returns 
King Jesus will return to reveal the children of God and the children of the curse. So let's talk about this revelation of the children of God, of the sheep. Verses 34 to 40. Now, if you're like me, you have a pretty short memory, so I'm going to refresh for you. Let's refresh. Verses 34 to 40 of the revelation of the children of God. What is he going to do? Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The revelation of the children of God. Here's what I see in those verses. That the children of God are blessed. (laughs) The blessed children of God. Then we see behavior befitting the children of God. But then we see bewilderment, (laughs) confusion, from the children of God. So, the blessed children of God. In verse 34, he calls them, you who are blessed by my Father. What a title that is. And I love what Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century pastor and theologian said. He said about this title given, the blessed children of God, that we, all believers, will not know what bliss that title implies until we hear it from the Savior's lips. And even then we will only begin to understand what we will continue to enjoy throughout all eternity. (laughs) The blessed children of God. He says, inherit the kingdom to the children of God. And in 1 Peter, it's revealed to us that the kingdom of God is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and reserved in heaven for you. Unlike anything in this world that does perish, that does fade, that does pass away, that's transient, temporary, the kingdom of God is permanent. And you know what? God wants to give it to his children. Luke 12, it says, Fear not, little flock, for it's the Father's great pleasure to give you this kingdom. Surely the children of God are blessed. He said, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And the more I thought about this, I thought, wow. You know, the more that somebody puts time and effort, some of you have mixed feelings about the love languages. One of the love languages is gift giving. And I thought about how much time and effort somebody puts into a gift, thinking about it, preparing it, planning it, shopping for it, putting it together, whatever, the longer they take to think about it and know the person they're giving it to and prep it and all this, man, the more meaningful, the more great that gift is. This kingdom that God has prepared for his, king, for his children has been prepared for you, he says, from the foundation before the foundation of the world. Was that before you were born? Yep. Before the world was made, he has been planning to give you this permanent, everlasting, unfading kingdom reserved in heaven for you. 
Isn't that amazing? In 2 Timothy 2, it says the Lord knows those who are his. John 10, he knows his sheep. His sheep know his voice. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. It also says in Ephesians 1 that he predestined us for adoption to himself through Jesus Christ. Those are some weighty, weighty words right there. Chosen before the foundation of the world. Adopted for himself through Jesus Christ before any of us were even born. What's the logical next question to that? How do I know that he chose me? How do I know that I'm adopted into the family of God? How do I know this kingdom was prepared for me, that he loves me, that he cares about me? How do I know? And I've said this once before, and I need to say it more often. Look through scripture. Look at the times where people are called to give their life to Jesus, to be part of the kingdom of God. Do you ever find a place that says, hey, I want to tell you about Jesus, but first, are you chosen? Are you elect? Did God call you? Are you one of the people that he prepared the kingdom from before the foundation of the world? If so, I want to have a conversation with you. Does that ever happen? Does Jesus ever do that? No. What he does ask people, and what believers ask people, is not are you chosen, it's are you a sinner? There it is. Are you somebody in need of forgiveness and grace? Because Jesus says anyone who comes to him, anyone, anyone, he will never cast out. You confess your sins and you believe in Jesus and you are his forever, period, done, gospel, believe it, embrace it. You're his. And those who have said yes to the first invitation to confess your sins and believe in Jesus, that first invitation, if you've said yes, then that second invitation to this kingdom prepared before the foundation of the world that you are now being beckoned to and called into forever, that's automatic. That's yours. All who have said yes to the first invitation are granted into the second one. But here's what he shows us in this parable. There are signs, there are behaviors befitting the children of God, befitting those who have said yes to that first invitation. Look at verses 35 to 36. The king says, the just judge says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now before you rush to think about your own life, think about God for a minute. Consider God. He identifies so closely to those in need that when those in need are helped, it's as if we are helping God. It's as if we're doing it to him. When you minister, that word minister means to meet someone's needs. He identifies so closely to the poor, the needy, to those who need something, that when you do it to them, it's like you're doing it to him. Consider God's heart there. He doesn't have to identify. He doesn't have to relate so closely with those in need, and yet he does. He's way up there, high, holy, majestic, and yet humbles himself. Proverbs 14.31 says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, 
but whoever is generous to the needy honors him. In Acts 9, when Jesus stops Saul in his tracks on the way to Damascus to persecute more Christians, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? He identifies so closely to those suffering, to the needy, that when you'd help them, it's like you're helping God himself. Consider God for a minute, and then consider yourself. Are you a little uncomfortable when you read this and think about your own life? I was, I am, when I read this. When you think about your own life, if you put those things in, in the categories of these three things, food, shelter, and companionship, is your life characterized by those who are meeting other people's needs? He said he came to serve, not to be served. And his children reflect that in some ways. We respond by serving as well, by meeting people's needs. Is my life characterized by providing food, shelter, companionship to others? Sit in that for a minute. If you're uncomfortable, stay uncomfortable for a little while. <laughs> it's good. It causes us to draw close to the king. Consider God, consider yourself, then consider the world for a minute. When they look at your life, if they're told, okay, there's sheep and there's goats, there's those that belong to God, there's those that don't, there's the only two categories, someone looks at your life, will they be able to say, yep, sheep, that's somebody who belongs to God, that's somebody who reflects the, the God that I read about in scripture, I see that. Can they say that about us? Can they say that about our church? But I want to point out something. The just judge, the king, only seems to point out in the sheep their merits, the good that they've done. When you ministered to the hungry, to the sick, to the needy, to those in prison, he's only talking about the positives in the sheep. Any sheep here know that we're not all positive? <laughs> Any sheep here know that we're not just full of good works our whole lives? Anybody? Yeah. We know our mistakes. He knows our mistakes more than we do. How many times have we failed to be the people that God has called us to be, to be servants, to be ministers, to meet people's needs? We, we not only don't help people sometimes, we hurt them. We lie, we gossip, we're greedy, we're unthankful, prideful, judgmental, on and on. We fail to meet people's needs in times that we should or when we can. So why, oh why, has this judge seemed to have glossed over or forgotten about all the mistakes of the sheep. What I'm about to say I find so beautiful. Because for the sheep, for those that belong to the king, for those that confess their sins and believe in Jesus, the end time judgment has already happened. It already happened. Where did it already happen? On a cross in Calvary, when Jesus died for all those sheep mistakes. All those times we failed to do what we should have done and have not only failed to do the right thing but have actually done the wrong thing blatantly in our life now, past, present, all of it. The end time judgment has already occurred for those who are in Christ. Man, that's beautiful. So, if you read over this parable, you might have done what I did. You get a bit nervous. Is my life characterized by those things? by ministering to people, and I wonder the question, is the only difference between the sheep and the goats whether or not they ministered to people? Is that the only difference? The sheep ministered 
to the poor and the needy and the hungry and the thirsty and those that were outcast and felt alone or isolated and visited those. That's, they did that, the sheep did, but the goats didn't. Is that the only difference? Look a little closer. This is key. The sheep were bewildered. Verses 37 to 40. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The sheep have seemingly forgotten all these different times that they ministered to somebody else, which was ministering to God himself. They seem to forget all these times the king is saying, all the good impact that your life has had. They weren't keeping track of it. Think about the heart of the sheep for a second. Those who are changed by the gospel of Christ, he humbles us. He, get, he changes us to the point where we don't have to try to keep track of the good things that we do to try to get a point from Jesus or earn our way into the kingdom of God. He changes our hearts to actually care about people and minister to them. Not in a forced way. Sure, at times we, we need, of course, need encouragement and a push and all those things. But he changes our heart. We don't keep track of all the time we've served the least of these, my brethren. Who is he talking about, by the way, when he says the least of these, my brothers? It seems there's a pretty clear answer to this according to the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus says the least of these, my brothers, who is he talking about according to the Gospel of Matthew? He's talking about disciples, followers of Christ. Matthew 12, Matthew 23, Matthew 28, for some examples of those, in Matthew 12, he was teaching a crowd of people and his family, like his mother, earthly mother, Mary, and his brothers and sisters and half-brothers, they're coming over and they want to get Jesus' attention and talk to him. And he's teaching a crowd and someone comes up and says, hey, your mom's here, your brothers, your sisters, they want to talk to you. And Jesus says something that sounds a little bit rude and he says, who are my brothers and my sisters and my mother? But those who do the will of my father. He's saying, this is my family too. Who are the least of these? My brothers, my sisters, it's followers of Christ. Galatians, and not to, not to diminish the fact that scripture all over the place says to care for people whether they're in the church or not. To care for that poor person, that needy person, whether or not they say they follow Christ or not. There's plenty of examples of that. But the least of these, my brothers and sisters, he's talking about followers of Christ. He's talking about the church. Galatians 6 says, the end of Galatians 6, as given opportunity, do good to everyone, but especially, especially, the household of faith, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. This took me a little while to, to get the significance of that. I didn't believe that for a while, personally. My own pilgrimage here, I thought it's definitely more important to develop all, as many relationships as I can with non-believers to try to bring them into the kingdom. That's important, that's good. But what about the family of God? Can we act like a family too? Absolutely we can. The household of faith. The sheep were surprised in all the ways that in their lives they impacted their brothers and their sisters in the faith. They were surprised by it. And listen, you're going to be surprised by all the ways God 
has used your life to impact in positive ways your brothers and your sisters in the faith. You're going to be surprised. I'm going to give some examples. I'm not the just judge. But one day I think you're going to stand before him and he's going to say some of these things about your own life and what you've done and the overflow of your life and your love for God, how that spilled out and impacted those around you, your brothers and sisters in the faith. He might say something like, you might not remember the time you sat down with that single mom to help organize her budget, but I do. You might not remember when you were a kid in, in, in VBS or in a little later in life in youth group, the activities, the service that they did, the outreach that they did that impacted these people and help these brothers and sisters, but I do. You might not remember the volunteering you did for a vacation Bible school or for Sunday school. You might not remember the time that you reached out to the person in your congregation that looked a bit isolated on that day and talked to them. They felt lonely and you reached out to them. You might not remember that day. It was a Tuesday in 2009. You forgot about that. But the just judge hasn't forgotten about that. You might have forgotten about the people that you, that you put together meals for when they had kids or reached out to for whatever reason. The person you prayed for and that person you prayed for and that person, that person, and that person. You might have forgotten about it, but he didn't. And he says, when you did those things to your brothers and your sisters, you did it to me. Why do we do it? Because he's changing our hearts. Why do we do it? To get a point with Jesus? No. Why does he change us in daily ways that we reach out to our brothers and sisters? Because they're our brothers and our sisters. Because they're, they're, they're one of us. Because we care. That's why. Our actions... The good that we do, it doesn't save us. It never has. It never will. But they can show that God is working in our hearts. The fruit of our lives, the fruit in our lives, things that we do, they can show evidence of where the root of our faith is in Christ. That's, you see, they were bewildered. All these good things the king's pointing out. I love this quote by D.A. Carson. He's a pastor, theologian, part of the Gospel Coalition. He says this about the, the, the idea, the main point of this parable. If you had to summarize it in a couple sentences, I have it for you in a slide. The point of the sheep and the goats parable is to wait for the Lord Jesus as people whose lives are so transformed by the Gospel that they unselfconsciously serve their brothers and their sisters in Christ. There it is. If nothing else, this, here's the point of it. Wait for the Lord Jesus. How do we wait? As people whose lives are so transformed by the gospel that we unselfconsciously serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. Can we do that? <laughs> Going to take a lot of God in us to do it. But we can. King Jesus will return to reveal the children of God. He's also going to reveal the children of the curse. The revelation of the children of the curse is in verses 41 to 46. And here it is. You all still with me? Okay. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. 
For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? Or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And did not minister to you. Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And these verses about the revelation of the children of the curse, I see banishment, I see behavior befitting the children of the curse, and then I see bewilderment again, but for a different reason. We see banishment in verses 41 through 46. He will say to the goats, to those who don't belong to Christ, to those that didn't confess their sins and believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. He will say, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then in verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That word eternal before punishment and, and eternal death and before, before life, that word eternal before both of those, the bad thing and the good thing, it's the same word, it means forever. Forever with Christ in heaven or forever separated, paying for the, the penalty of their sins in the lake of fire, the second death. Jesus keeps talking about it. I don't want to talk about it. I'm, I'm, I really don't want to talk about it. The eternal death, the lake of fire, I've had to mention it more times than I want to. If it was up to me, I would mention it maybe once or twice a year and say, let's remember what happens when we decide to do whatever we want to and not submit our lives to Christ. I would bring it up a couple times maybe. He keeps bringing it up. Why? Because he cares. Because he doesn't want you to go there. We think at times, man, so-and-so got away with doing this in life, and there's no justice. So-and-so never went before a human judge. They committed all these atrocities. And we look at this person and that person and say, oh, we want justice. Don't forget, there will be no injustice left when the just judge returns. Not a single thing. Not the murder, not the lie. None of it. Not the ingratitude. Not a single thing will be left uncovered. Remember Hebrews 4. Everyone will stand before the king, exposed their whole life to give an account for what they've done, the deeds done in the body. And here's the scary but, but encouraging thing. Wait for it. Everybody deserves to hear those words. Depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's what we deserve. Not one of us has lived the life that God has called us to live by ourselves. To love God and love others. To love others as we love ourselves. We haven't done that. In the ways that we're going to be shocked at how God has used our lives positively to impact others, man, we would be shocked in the ways that we've hurt ourselves and other people too. We all deserve it. And at the same time, he offers forgiveness and acceptance. Free. We will either pay for all of our sins ourselves 
or we will say, thank you, Jesus, for paying for all of my sins on the cross. That's it. The children of the curse are revealed. All stand cursed before God if they don't turn to Christ. It's what he says in John 3. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Already. Original sin, the fall, what we're prone to do on our own, to treasure something other than God and to live for that. But it says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, eternal death, physical death, both. The wages of sin is death. What our sins earn for us is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's both of those at the same time. And as the children of God had behavior that befitted the fact that they belonged to him in some ways, so will the children of the curse not be able to refute the ways that they are in fact children of the curse with the just judgment from God because of it. They have behavior befitting the curse. Verses 42 to 43. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. With the sheep, the king seems to overlook all the bad things and only talk about the merits. And with the goats, he seems to overlook all the merits and only talk about the negatives. Why is that? Think about it for a second. How many might say, objection? I volunteered. I served this person. I visited that person when they were in prison. I've done some of those things that you mentioned. But remember what he said to the sheep. When you did those things, you did it to me. Why do, why do those do the things that they do who don't belong to God? I don't know. You don't know. We can't read people's hearts, but the just judge can. He knows what our treasures are. He knows why we do the things that we do. We don't know why they did the things that they did. But apparently it wasn't for him. It wasn't from him and for him. Behavior befitting the curse. And then we find bewilderment in them as well in verses 44 to 45. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Notice they're trying to justify. They're trying to justify their lives before the king, which we all tend to do. Justify our actions. Think that we're all right and we're going in a fine direction. We all justify ourselves. Proverbs 21 says, every way of a man or a woman is right in their own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Every way seems right to us, but the Lord weighs the heart. And in Proverbs 14, and then repeated again in Proverbs chapter 16, the same verse, there is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way of death. It seems right. I think I've been a pretty good person. If there's a heaven, surely I deserve it. Maybe not that person, they're definitely a goat, but me. Surely I should be welcomed into the kingdom of God. We think we're fine. There's a sense of entitlement in some ways, which reminds me a little bit what we talked about last week, the prodigal son. We talked about the first son, who basically said to his father, 
I want my inheritance now. So I know you're not dead yet, but can you give me half of it so I can go spend it the way that I want to? And he was given that half, in, half the inheritance. And unlike the unfaithful servant in the parable of the talents who hid the money and then later brought it back to the master, this person just went and spent it all, squandered all of it, lost all of it, got in a very difficult place, and thought to himself, I'm going to rehearse a speech, go back to my father. I don't need to be a son anymore. I don't deserve that. I'm going to be a servant. It's better than what I got going on now. I got no money. I'm eating pig's food. Help me, Lord. This is not awesome. Help me. I'm going to go back to my father. Goes back. And instead of being embraced as a servant or allowed to do whatever, the father runs after him, embraces him, welcomes into the family, throws a party. You've always been my son. Welcomed back with open arms. That son understood grace, that he didn't deserve it, that what he deserved was to pay for what he did, but he's welcomed back with open arms. He understood grace. There's another son in the parable, though, the older son, who did not understand grace, who was furious when his little brother came back and said to himself, I never left. I never squandered the money of your inheritance. I've been working hard this whole time. What's going on here? Didn't understand grace. Furious. Do we understand grace? Do we look at somebody else and say, surely they could never get into heaven because they've done this or that, and they, there's no way God will accept them? If we have those kinds of thoughts, it could be because we don't yet understand grace. It's something we don't deserve. And that's why we embrace it. And that's why we're able to praise God for it and not say, yep, I knew this was coming, let me right into that kingdom. I'm going to close with a, start to land the plane with a question here. As I was reading through this parable, I thought about a question. I thought, he's talking about the sheep and the goats. The sheep did all these things that in some ways reflected they, that they belonged to the king. They reflected that they were children of God in some way. And I thought, as I was reading through the parable and prepping this, I thought, now what about the person who really won't have evidence that they belong to God throughout their life? What about somebody who an hour, two hours, two days before they die, that's when they give their life to Christ? Are they going to be a sheep? Are they going to be someone who hears, well done, good and faithful servant? Well, we can ask the person that was on the cross next to Christ. Ask him. When hours before he died said, Lord, would you remember me when you enter into your kingdom? And what did Jesus say? Nope, you didn't do enough. You didn't try hard enough. You didn't get it. You didn't embrace the gospel 10 years ago when so-and-so told you about me. No. You didn't follow God when you had the chance. No. Today I'll be with you in paradise. That's what he said. There's a quote from Rosaria Butterfield in the book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She says, not everyone can come to Christ in the fullness of life. While the world, the flesh, and the devil are raging and strong. But anyone led by the Spirit can come to Christ on their deathbed when the flesh is weak. Anyone. She gave a personal story of her mother who was adamantly opposed to God, to the gospel, to Christians her whole life. Just adamantly opposed. And her mom got lung cancer. Two days before she died, as Rosaria Butterfield was praying for her, singing psalms to her, Two days before she died, her mother said to her, you know what? 
I think I'm becoming weak like you. Tell me about this shepherd that you know. And she got saved. Two days before she died. Is she a sheep? Yes. Is she going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Yes. Because of her life? Because of the life of Jesus. Because of the one she put her faith in. She will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you understand grace? So why do people do the things that they do? Because we have treasures. We have goals. We have something we long for. We have something we want. And that controls our hearts. And that controls our hands, what we do. We can't help but follow what we treasure. What is God's treasure? Do you know one of the things he calls us is his treasured possession? He treasures his people. He didn't have to, but he wanted to come for us, and he did. And when he says that when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me, he's not speaking just sympathetically. He doesn't just identify in a distant way. He was naked on the cross. He died for the shame, for our shame, naked on the cross. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He said, I thirst. He was an outcast, crucified outside the original walls in Jerusalem. Why? Because he came for his treasured possession, his people, the children of God. And one day he's going to return. So how do we live in the meantime, either before we die or before he returns, with our head and with our heart and with our hands? Couple thoughts. Consider with your mind the one who made the conscious decision despite knowing exactly what it would cost him came anyways for us. Consider that with your mind. Make him your treasure. And be captivated with your heart to the one who was stirred in affection, not just once a week or once a month, but daily, every day, through the occasions of mundane and the momentous, in love for his people. And then choose with your hands to serve, to be controlled by the one who could have eradicated his enemies with a wave of his finger, but instead served and forgave and had those hands nailed to that wooden cross 2,000 years ago to set us free. And remember, now that you're his, a child of God, if you've simply confessed your sins and believe in Jesus, given your life to him as your Savior and your Lord, if you've done that, your actions don't save you. They don't rescue you. They don't make it so that you are given entrance into the kingdom of God. They can simply show that God is working in you and the overflow of your love for God spilled out in those around you. And the fruit in your life can indicate the root of your faith in him. And so, wait for the Lord Jesus as people whose lives are so transformed by the gospel that they unselfconsciously serve their brothers and their sisters in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, your word can be weighty. Lord, to think about that day that you return in all of your glory with all of your angelic hosts to judge all nations. We've never seen anything close to that. 
Lord, would you help us prepare on a daily basis to draw close to you, to know that we're yours. And Lord, I pray again, if somebody here doesn't know that they're yours, would take that step, that free gift that you've given and embrace your offer of salvation to simply come to you and to confess their sins and trust in you, Jesus. To be part of your church, that you would help us to serve and teach and grow your body. And God, give us the confidence the many of us who know that we're yours, even when we have doubts at times, to be able to fix our minds on you, on your character, on your heart, to be captivated by your love and to serve, to walk in the good works that you've prepared beforehand for us as we longingly look forward to our treasure, you and your kingdom. And may you come quickly. Amen.